Well, if one is not careful in the presence of foreign royalty or dignitaries, you can easily cause offense. You know, it was because of this reality that the State Department first appointed a full-time protocol officer in the year 1916 and established the office of the Chief of Protocol on February 4th, 1928. If you remember your world history, you know those were times of tension in our world between nations, and it was hard enough to get world leaders to agree on the issues of the day much more so if there was needless offense caused in, in how one was interacting with others. You see, how one interacts with or, or, uh, or, or approaches kings or other dignitaries matters. You know, how do you respond when they enter the room in a way that communicates appropriate respect? What do you call them? How do you talk to them? When do you talk to them? Should you touch them? Or how should those interactions go? And You know, despite having a full-time protocol officer in an office of the chief of protocol, there's been many um, diplomatic snafus over the years. You know, many are are fairly harmless, such as when Michelle Obama put her arm around the Queen of England, or others are somewhat humorous, like when George Bush Sr. once puked on the Japanese Prime Minister at a state dinner. But there are no harmless or humorous snafus when it comes to approaching the holy king, the God of the universe. This is one of the lessons of the book of Leviticus, to which I invite you to turn this morning. Today, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, I want us to focus on Leviticus chapter 16. Now, Leviticus, as you know, is where most read-through-the-Bible goals go to die, right? You know, you start with noble ambitions in Genesis, and you get partway through Leviticus, and, and many of us can testify to maybe fading somewhat in our zeal. You know, it's not a common book for sermons. You may never have heard a sermon from the book of Leviticus before this morning. You know, as one author wrote, to the casual reader, this book represents the epitome of Old Testament irrelevance. Leviticus is full of minute descriptions of ancient rituals which have not been performed now for almost 2,000 years. You may be thinking, you've really got me excited for today's sermon. You know, I wish Tom was here. (laughs) Um, But I hope that if that's your perspective of Leviticus, that you will leave with a different one today. See, Leviticus is full of specific ceremonial laws now fulfilled in Christ. Laws about the offering of sacrifices, laws about the priesthood, laws about ceremonial uncleanness. But these ceremonial laws served and continue to serve a critical function in the Scriptures. They teach us foundational principles about God as holy and about man ourselves as sinners and about how mankind, how sinful people can approach a holy God, and be reconciled to Him. William Hendrickson observed, as ceremonial requirements, these laws are no longer valid, but their underlying principles are as valid today. You see, in teaching these foundational principles, they they serve to prepare for and point to the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And, And they also serve as a picture 
of the work accomplished by Jesus. And so they give us a greater understanding of what He has done and a greater appreciation for His work on our behalf. So rather than simply ignoring them as no longer important, we should be eager to understand them, eager to use them to fuel our worship of Christ. Let me briefly remind you of the context of Leviticus. You know that Leviticus comes after the book of Exodus, which records how God brought His people out from slavery in Egypt. You recall how He used the last of the ten plagues, the the death of the firstborn in Exodus chapter 11 to motivate Pharaoh to let his people go. God had commanded the Israelites to bring a spotless lamb into their homes and and then to slaughter that lamb and to put the blood from that lamb on their, their doorposts. So as Exodus 12, 13 says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And that's exactly what happened. The people of Israel did what God commanded, and and the Egyptian firstborns were killed, and and theirs were spared, and and God used that to rescue His people. And that event was commemorated in the Passover feast, celebrated year after year. And so God rescued them to be His people, His own possession, a a kingdom of priests, His holy nation, as Exodus 19, 3-6 says. And after God brought them out of slavery in Egypt, He he gave them a summary of His law in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and and then He instructed them to build a tabernacle, an elaborate tent for Him to dwell among them as their king. Exodus 29.8 says, let them construct a sanctuary for Me that I may dwell among them. About a year after that first Passover, the tabernacle was completed, and In chapter 40, verse 17 of Exodus, it says, Now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. And Exodus 40, 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the people of God were brought out of Egypt, and and God instructed them to build this tabernacle where His presence would dwell among them. It was a constant reminder to them that God was in their midst. You could see that that in the center of the camp, that there is where God's presence dwells among us. Obviously, God was everywhere, but it was a picture of His special relationship with them, that they were His people and He was their God. But it was also a reminder that God was distinct and separate from them, that God is holy. Even on the the artist's rendition on the screen, you see that there was a curtain surrounding the tabernacle that that separated the people from the tabernacle. It, It was a reminder that you can get close to God, but only so close. One commentator writes this, he says, the sanctuary was a controlled environment that made interaction possible in spite of the divine human separation that had resulted from sin. It was somewhat like a a glass bubble, he writes, devised by modern medical science to protect people whose bodies lack functional immune systems. He writes of a a few years ago when there was a, a bubble boy who would have died if he had ventured out of the environment that isolated him from germs 
And though through his bubble he could see people, talk to them, and come close to them, but he could not touch them or even sit on his mother's lap. Compares that to the Israelite sanctuary where he says, God came as close to his people as possible. However, his glorious presence was behind the inner veil in the most holy place. Just as the bubble boy had to be isolated from disease, God maintained a pure environment separate from the world of sin outside. But unlike the condition of the bubble boy, God's holy glory was lethal to people outside. That was the reminder of the tabernacle. God is with us, but he is distinct from us, and our sin does not mix with God's holiness. Then comes the book of Leviticus, a book that covers about a month and is primarily God communicating to, people, to his people. It, it begins in verse 1 of chapter 1, then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, God spoke to them from the tabernacle. Well, what's, what's going on here? God has rescued and redeemed his people. He's now enthroned as their holy king in the tabernacle. And he is giving them the protocol, as it were, for how to properly approach and worship the king and live as his subjects. And think about it. Where had the people been? They'd been in Egypt. They'd seen a horrible model of how to worship God. They'd seen a a, a polytheistic culture with so many gods and so many aspects of worship. They'd seen a horrible model of how to live holy lives. And so God is instructing them, saying, this is how you worship. This is how you as sinners can approach me, a holy God. This is how you live holy lives. See, the theme of Leviticus is holiness. It's about God's holiness and and our resulting desire to be holy as He is holy. The first 17 chapters really deal with how we approach a holy God. They teach us the way to a holy God through sacrifice. In these chapters, you see a phrase repeated time and time again about that that phrase, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. A reminder that it was through the sacrifices, the, the animals that were killed in the place of sinful people that God's just wrath was appeased. It was satisfied. As those sacrifices were offered, God's wrath was soothed. It was appeased. It was atoned for. And it's a reminder that we must approach God not only through sacrifice, but through a mediator. For there's instructions in chapters 8 through 10 to the priests, the ones who would offer those sacrifices on behalf of the people. The second half of the book, chapters 18 to 27, deals with living a holy life, with our walk with holy God or our sanctification. That familiar phrase, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy, is the theme of that section. Because of what God has done in making a way for us to be in relationship with Him, we should live holy lives as He is holy. Herbert Wolf summarizes these two sections of Leviticus this way. He writes, in Leviticus, we learn that sin must be dealt with and that God demands holy living. Leviticus tells how sinful people could approach a holy God and how they could live holy lives. Now, chapter 16, our text this morning comes near the end of that first section of Leviticus on 
how we approach holy God, and, and it transitions into that second section on, on living a holy life before Him. It's really the climax of that first section and provides the motivation for the second. It weaves together that theme of, of approaching God through sacrifice, sacrifice offered by a mediator on our behalf. Chapter 16 of Leviticus contains the instructions for the Day of Atonement, the, the National Day of Atonement, that day once a year when the high priest would enter into that very throne room of God offering sacrifice for himself and for the people. Chapter begins with, we see the sure need for atonement. Why was this necessary? Why was it so critical that sacrifice be offered in this way? Verse 1 of chapter 16 says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. You notice a theme of these verses, approach the presence of God, of the Lord, and you will die. He reminds of Nadab and Abihu in, in Leviticus chapter 10, those two sons of Aaron who approached the presence of the Lord and died. They approached without doing what God had commanded. Chapter 10, verse 1, if you flip back there, says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. You see, their life and their death was a powerful reminder from God that you approach me the way I tell you to, or you will die. I am to be treated as holy, as one who is separate and distinct, entirely unlike you, and one who is utterly and completely without sin. But there's also just the general reminder to Aaron that you can only come so far into the tabernacle or you will die. Do not enter the holy place inside the veil. Now, the tabernacle as you can see, had a, an outer courtyard. There was a curtain that surrounded that and separated the, the courtyard from the rest of the camp of the people. And then a, a portable temple, as it were, that they could travel with that had an outer and inner room. The inner room separated by a veil was the Holy of Holies, that, that holy place that contained the Ark of the Covenant, the top of which was the mercy seat or the place of atonement. And God said to Aaron, don't go inside the veil to the holy place, to that holy of holies, to that inner room where the Ark of the Covenant is and the mercy seat is, or you will die, for I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. You can't see me and come into my presence and live as a sinful man. 
There was need of atonement because God is holy and God is to be treated as holy and we are sinners who do not do that. We are sinners who who fall short of His glory, who do not honor and obey Him as we ought. So he says, Aaron, you can't enter in except once a year you need to to make atonement and you need to do it how I tell you, which leads us secondly to the specific instructions for atonement. Verse 2, he says, you shall not enter. Verse 3, he says, Aaron shall enter the holy place. And in the coming verses, he's going to give very specific instruction about how and, and why Aaron shall enter and the future high priest shall enter into the holy place. Now, he begins with a a general overview in verses 3 through 10, and then in verse 11, he kind of rehearses those things with specific details. Notice verse 3. He says, Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Now, these were two of the five offerings specified in Leviticus. A sin offering was offered for specific sins. The burnt offering was more of an offering for general atonement for sin. Verse 3 says, you shall bring a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. These, as we'll see, were for Aaron, not for the people. Verse 4 says, he shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body and he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. To prepare to go into the holy of holies with these sacrifices, Aaron was to bathe, a picture of cleansing that was needed, and then to get dressed in in this unique attire. If you compare it to what was normally worn in Leviticus chapter 8 by the high priest, this was a much simpler outfit. It was a humble outfit, reminding that the high priest was not only the mediator on behalf of the people to provide atonement, but he was one of the people, himself also in need of atonement. And so having bathed, having dressed in these holy garments for this purpose. Verse 5 says, He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. If you're counting, we've now got one bull and one ram for Aaron, two goats and one ram for the people. Verse 6 says, Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. See, before Aaron could represent the people before God and offer sacrifice on their behalf, he first had to deal with his own sin. And that was this first offering of the bull for a sin offering. Verse 7 says, then he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and he shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. You see, there's two goats, but both goats are not going to die and be sacrificed. He'll He'll cast lots to determine which goat is killed and which goat becomes the scapegoat. We'll see more of that 
in a second, but verse 9 says, Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. That goat dies. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. So Aaron, as we see, had to first offer sacrifice for himself so that he could enter and not die, and then he could offer the goat on whom the lot fell on behalf of the people. In verse 11, he gives the specific details of how this was to play out. Notice verse 11 says, Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, he will die. So he would first take that bull and slaughter it and offer it as a sacrifice on the altar that was in the courtyard. And and then he would take some of the coals from that sacrifice and he would take some incense and go through into the Holy of Holies. and, And he would put that incense on those coals so that the smoke would fill the room. That that incense, the cloud of incense would cover the mercy seat and the Ark of the Testimony. Why is that? Well, well those that incense and, and that, that reminder of the sacrifice was to soothe the, the just wrath of God and it was to veil the glory of God so that Aaron could enter into that holy of holy place and live. Because otherwise, he would enter and die. Moreover, verse 14 says, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also, in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. That bull that had been slaughtered, he had brought some coals from that sacrifice with the incense, he would now take some of the blood from that bull into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle it on top of that mercy seat, on top of the ark. That place of atonement, the place of propitiation to satisfy, to soothe the wrath of God. And he would sprinkle that blood in in front of the mercy seat, a reminder that an innocent one had died in his place. This sprinkling of blood was, was a clear principle of sacrifice throughout Leviticus and the rest of the Old Testament that it was blood, the giving of life, that was required for atonement. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. See, an innocent one had to die so that the guilty one could live. It was only after he had made atonement for himself that the high priest could turn to making atonement for the people. Verse 15 says, Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. 
He would kill one of the goats, the one on whom the lot had fallen, and he would sprinkle its blood again on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat as he had done previously with the bull, but this time doing so on behalf of the people. This was a national sacrifice, as it were. You see, day after day, week after week, throughout the year, individual worshipers would come and and would offer sacrifices for sin in order to atone for the, the intentional and unintentional sins that separated them from God and deserved death. This was, as it were, a a national covering for all the things that were missed and and as a reminder that that as a people, they were sinful and God was holy and, and they could only approach Him through sacrifice. Verse 16 continues, He shall make atonement for the holy place. He transitions from the sacrifice for the people now to, to the purification of the tabernacle and the surrounding area and, and vessels. He shall make atonement for the holy place. It says, because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins, and thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. He says even the, the tabernacle itself has to be cleansed because it's in the presence of these impure, sinful, rebellious people. Why is he doing this? Because of their impurities, their uncleanness. He's described in the preceding chapters the laws of ceremony uncleanness, a reminder that they were separate from God. And even in the normal course of life, they, they could not enter into God's presence as sinful people. A reminder of, of not only their uncleanness that, that drove this need, but of their transgressions, it says in verse 16. Their rebellion. They had violated the covenant made with God. They'd broken the terms of the treaty, and they deserved to die because of their sin. And so he would make atonement for the holy place. And then verse 17, when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly. This was a one-man job. One man who had who had made atonement through the sacrifice of the bull could represent the people, nobody else allowed. Verse 18, then he shall go to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and take some of the blood of the bull and of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it and from the impurities of the sons of Israel consecrate it. Even that altar that was in the courtyard where they were offered sacrifices needed to be cleansed and consecrated. Why? Because sinful people had been offering sacrifices on it all year. So he would sprinkle some of the blood on the altar to consecrate it so that it would be again dedicated as holy to the Lord. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the, the high priest, of Aaron and future high priests who would do this. Maybe think about the time you've been most nervous in your life. You know, maybe it was a, a big game or singing a solo at a big concert. Maybe it was a major test you had to take in school or a, a job interview, critical work presentation, an upcoming major surgery for yourself or someone you love. None of those things hold a candle to what Aaron was expected to do. 
God says, Aaron, don't enter ever into the holy place, except, oh, oh, this one day you need to, but you better get it right or you're going to die. You are a sinful man, keenly aware of the fact that I alone am God, I alone am holy, and you are going to come in and you are going to offer sacrifice to make atonement for yourself and for the people. Put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. Now, this was a big deal. We'll see in verse 29, it was, it was a national holiday. Everybody was off because this was really important. God wanted them to know this mattered. Now, if you were an Israelite watching, maybe barely able to see what's going on, only hearing the whispers of, of what's gone on through the crowd, you know, oh, he made it back out alive after the first one. He's going back in. You know, you might have thought, man, I, I kind of wish I was the high priest. It'd be pretty cool to get to do this. But then you're probably thinking, like, I'm really glad I'm not the high priest because he's probably going to die. A powerful reminder. God alone is holy. Amen. We are sinful people. The only way we can approach a, sin, or a holy God as sinful people is through sacrifice. Sacrifice offered by a mediator on our behalf. What comes next? Well, we've seen he's offered the bull for himself and his family. One goat has been slaughtered on behalf of the people, but there's another goat. We've seen the sure need for atonement and the specific instructions for atonement. Notice third, the shocking result of the atonement. Verse 20 says, when he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins, and he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. When he'd finished those two sacrifices, he would take that second goat and lay both hands on it. Typically, it was lay one hand on the sacrifice, but here it was both, picturing the, the transfer of sin, the sin of the nation, onto that animal. Typically, that was followed by the slaughtering of that animal, but in this case, it was not. This goat was given to another man. It was taken out into the wilderness, never to be seen Again, it was gone. It was taken away. What was that a picture of? It was a picture of how God viewed their sin, that sin having been atoned for through sacrifice. It was Psalm 103.12 that as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. One goat died. The other goat took all the sin far, far away. See the picture? God is gracious and merciful, but that atonement required a sacrifice. The shocking reality was that God forgave their sins. Their sins were atoned for, but notice fourthly the significant limitation of this atonement. It wasn't a true, complete atonement. It was a temporary one. 
Even after all this, notice verse 23, then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. But remember, there were two rams left. It says, he shall bathe his body with water in the holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and what? Offer his burnt offering, one ram, and the burnt offering of the people, the other ram, and make atonement for himself and for the people. It's like, what, wait a minute, what do we just do? I thought we just made atonement for himself and the people. It's like, yep, and guess what? You get to do it again and again and again. Even that day, there was another sacrifice, and, and he, he continues, verse 29, and says, this shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you, for it is, it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be cleaned from all your sins before the Lord. Verse 34 continues, now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord commanded Moses, so he did. You see, this was not full and complete atonement. This was a temporary covering of sin to buy them a little bit more time. And so next year they would do it again. And the next year they would do it again. And the next year they would do it again. And the next year they would do it again. Again, put yourself in, in their shoes. Every year you rejoice as you watch the scapegoat leave the camp, never to be seen again, rejoicing that God has cleansed you and knowing we got to do this again. Knowing you will do it again the next year with a different goat, the constant reminder that God is holy and you are sinful and the only way you can approach holy God is through sacrifice and a mediator on your behalf. Oh, but now, now we no longer have an annual day of atonement. Turn to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 as we prepare our hearts to take of the Lord's table we are reminded of the amazing reality that Christ perfectly fulfilled all that was spelled out here that these things were but a picture of what was coming the one sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 7, recount what we've already seen about the, the construction of the tabernacle and, and how the high priest would enter one day a year offering sacrifice, the blood of, of bulls and goats on behalf of himself and for the sins of the people. But verse 11 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. We see later in this chapter, He entered the very presence of God. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, 
Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, Jesus did not enter as a, the next in the line of high priests into a temporary tabernacle. Jesus did not offer the blood of goats and calves. Jesus did not need to do this over and over and over. Jesus, the perfect high priest, the sinless man who needed not to make any atonement for himself, offered his own blood, giving his own life in a once-for-all sacrifice so that we cannot be temporarily cleansed, but that we can have eternal redemption. He continues in verse 24, Christ did not enter a holy place made without hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What an amazing reality. What a Savior Verse 27 says, and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for Him. You see, there's two options for you sitting here today. One is that Christ has paid for your sins, and you eagerly await His return as your Savior. The other is that you have spurned and rejected God's means of atonement for you, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will one day stand before Him in judgment. We have an amazing Savior. If you will repent and believe, trust in Christ alone, the finished work that He's accomplished, you will be reconciled to God. And the result of that reconciliation, chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We don't come into God's presence like the high priest, trembling and shaking and hoping we got it right, trying to remember, was that six sprinkles or seven? I got to get it right. We come with confidence, with full assurance, not because of ourselves, not because we checked all the boxes, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We have confident access to the Holy King, not because of ourselves, but because of Him. And just like in Leviticus, the way to a holy God, the sacrifices that God provides, fuels holiness and obedience in our lives, so that is true here. Because of what Christ has done, we recognize we can never be holy enough to approach God on our own merit, but we want to be motivated, we want to live to be holy as He is holy because of what He's done for us. This reality motivates us to live holy lives, the the amazing work of Christ on our behalf. 
And this reality is what we celebrate together now in the Lord's table. This memorial that Christ gave us to remember His perfect life and His substitutionary death on our behalf. A picture for us of God's holiness and our sinfulness and and of the way God made for us to be right with Him through Jesus Christ. This memorial is for all those who are in Christ, for those who've turned from their sin, who are trusting in Christ alone, and and for all those who are in Christ who, who are loving Him and eager to follow Him in obedience, who are not holding on to sin. As 1 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29 says, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's take a moment and and prepare our hearts, examine ourselves before we do this together. Oh God, we've been reminded this morning of Your holiness, that You alone are God. You are utterly distinct and separate from us. You are perfect and spotless in Your holiness, utterly free from sin. And Lord, as sinful people, we deserve only Your wrath. We deserve death, and yet You've been so gracious to us in Christ. We rejoice in the work that He has done on our behalf. And Lord, we confess that we are still sinful people, that we fail to live as You've called us to. We are not holy as You are holy, even though as those who've been washed and cleansed, we desire to be. And so, Lord, we ask that You would forgive us, that You would forgive us for the things we've done that You've commanded us not to do, for the attitudes and and speech and actions that we have sinned in. And Lord, we ask that You would forgive us for not doing the things that we ought to do, for not loving You as we ought, not loving others as we should. Lord, be gracious to us, cleanse us even as we confess these things to You so that we might celebrate what Christ has done on our behalf in a way that honors Him, that honors His sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, do these things for Your glory. In Christ's name, amen.